0: From TheHeart.org radio, this is The Fellow's Corner.
1: Hi, I'm John Galla, fellow moderator at TheHeart.org. I'm joined here tonight with my colleague, Dr. Casey Becker, and also uh, with my chairman, uh, Dr. Stephen Nissen from the Cleveland Clinic. And this will be the second installment of Put the Chairman in the Hot Seat. Welcome, both of you. Dr. Nissen, uh, towards the end of your uh, reign as president of the ACC, you made some rather provocative comments about uh, your vision for uh, the future of fellow training. And I wonder if you might share with us uh, maybe your vision or thoughts on uh, fellow training
0: and how it uh, might differ in the future uh, if you had it your way. First of all, me make provocative comments? I'm very (laughs) surprised that anybody would ever think that I would make a provocative comment about anything because I really try to avoid you know, controversy whenever I can. Mm-hmm. But uh, I deliberately in fact um, uh, threw a hand grenade in my final speech as president of the American College of Cardiology. And let me tell you why I did it. Fellowship training has become too long and there's too much to do to become an outstanding cardiologist. Most of our trainees, as you all know, are doing subspecialization. You know, they're going on after fellowship and doing you know, heart failure, they're do, or they're doing uh, intervention or doing electrophysiology. Some of those disciplines take at least another two years to become proficient. So now we got a group of people who have done four years of college, four years of medical school, three years of internal medicine, three years of cardiology, and then another two years of a sub-specialization, and their grandparents <laughs> by the time they actually finish and get to either teach or go into practice. Um, what can be done about this problem? We need electrophysiologists, we need interventionists, but we need to get them in a timely fashion. I believe that the redundancy in the education system comes from internal medicine. You know, cardiology has long ago left what I consider you know, the real family of internal medicine. You know, we don't have as much in common with infectious diseases or, or gastroenterology as we did in, in the days of Osler. You know, the current system of dividing the world into surgical disciplines and medical disciplines and never the train, twain shall meet. Look at what we're doing in the cath lab now. We're doing procedures that are quasi-surgical procedures. So the argument then is, shouldn't cardiology do what neurology did Leave internal medicine and become a freestanding specialty. If we did that, we could take people directly out of medical school into, say, initially a five year program. The first couple of years would be a rotating, you know, internship, first year of residency in those specialties of medicine that you really need to be an outstanding cardiologist pulmonary, you know, renal. You know some other disciplines, right? Uh, Endocrinology, because of course diabetes is so is so terribly important. It would be light on oncology and some of the other disciplines. I believe we could shorten training by a full year, and possibly eventually even shorten it by two years, and still turn out very fine physicians as cardiologists. To do that, I think it's time for cardiology to leave internal medicine. Now this will not be easy. There are powerful forces aligned against this. But I believe cardiology is so important, has become such an important discipline in modern medicine that it needs to stand on its own and I think we need to get people through training in a more timely fashion. So I made the proposal and the final line of my exit speech was, Resistance is futile. <laughs> um, and for those of you that are Star Trek fans, you understand what I meant. It's going to happen. It's a question of when. Right.
2: So do you think that means then that certain fellowship tracks would evolve from this new paradigm, wherein folks short tracked early on for, say, an interventional bend, or an electrophysiological bend,
0: or uh, an, uh, a heart failure bend? Well, that's a very interesting wrinkle, uh, you know, Casey. I think, uh, you know, I hadn't quite taken it that far. Yeah. You know, my goal was first. To avoid, let, let's be clear about this. The three years of internal medicine, I mean, you guys did it not very long ago, you know. You know, being up there on the wards pushing cancer chemotherapy, does that really has that really equipped you to be a better cardiologist? If you can differentiate early and if you know what you want to do, you know, why can't we focus your training on the things that you will use and that will make you better practitioners and better cardiologists? Now you're you're suggesting taking this the next step. Yep. And what you're saying is now, perhaps earlier in fellowship, you could differentiate, start to move. Now, of course, you know, we do that. You know, when, you have, when, when, when one of our fellows has an interest in echocardiography, they manage to get more time in the echo lab and do more transesophageal echo. You know, there's some of that differentiation that goes on with electives, but certainly, it's certainly. not as formal. Correct, yeah. And it could be. You know, if I you want to so. be an EP doc, you know, we could get you in the EP lab earlier as a third year fellow and so on. So yeah. these, are, these are important ideas. You know, we have a shortage of cardiologists in America. And, you know, and I also think that it's more respectful of the people involved. So what, what's the average age of somebody completing a two year interventional fellowship? You guys have to help me with my math here a little bit. 33, four, 34. Yeah, you know, 33, you know, yeah. how many of them still have hair? <laughs> not bad so far. Some some, some of them do, (laughs) I mean, I I I kid you guys about this a little bit, but you know, um, I trained in a different era. You know, I did my three years of internal medicine. I did a two-year fellowship in cardiology, and that was it. Now, some people may say that my knowledge is very limited because of that, (laughs) but you know, I think that if you focus well, and if you, what really counts, of course, is lifelong learning, and if you have good, you know, habits, and keeping up with the literature, if we get you through training with a lot of knowledge, very well focused, and if you're if you're well oriented towards that kind of, of continuing education, you can be a great doctor and you don't have to be 34 years old when you finish. We've seen a
1: realignment at our own institution with more of an organ system based uh, um, organization uh, of, of our uh, hospital. And I'm wondering whether you think that... A more a, a national push towards that sort of organ-based delineation of a of an yeah. institute, cardiothoracic institute, would facilitate some of those training issues for fellows. Where, if you like, you said we're doing more surgical training, and if we become more closely aligned with our surgical colleagues, whether that uh, that uh, association would would help with some of your
0: ideas. I think that's a very important point that you make, and I I think it's really actually uh, very germane to our discussion let me explain to our audience what we did, is we dissolved the entire medicine uh, orientation and we dissolved the entire surgical organization. So we are no longer organized in that Oslerian fashion. We're in an institute called the Heart and Vascular Institute that has three departments, cardiovascular medicine, vascular surgery, and cardiothoracic surgery. We have a lot in common. And I I think that as we move forward, uh, our hope here is that this cross-fertilization by organ system will be better for the patient, and I think it'll be a lot better for the trainees. Our vascular surgeons are very skilled at aortic stent grafting and some of these procedures that that are very interesting. And some of our cardiologists that are gonna go into intervention, I want them to be able to scrub in and get exposed to those procedures. And I want there to be that kind of cross-training so the people that leave our program are trained in all aspects of the heart and vascular system, you know, not just the more narrow discipline. We're doing a lot of percutaneous valves. Right. We mm-hmm. do those jointly with our cardiac surgeons. Right. So putting all those departments together into a heart and vascular institute, rather than having us over in the Department of Medicine with infectious diseases and pulmonary and so on, it's just a logical approach for the patient it means one-stop shopping. Sure. Whatever's wrong with your heart or vascular system, there's somebody in our Heart and Vascular Institute to take care of it. Now, what will happen nationally? Nobody knows. In academic institution, the forces surrounding maintaining the Department of Medicine and the Department of Surgery are powerful. Uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I've heard through the grapevine that uh, there are people at the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine that got a hold of my speech my uh, convocation speech at the ACC and that they were horrified. Uh, And apparently there's some dartboard there at their headquarters with my (laughs) face on it. You know, how dare this audacious cardiologist suggest that cardiology should leave internal medicine. But I will tell you, resistance is futile. Well, we've certainly
1: seen, seen paradigms within the surgical realm with uh, uh, neurosurgery and head and neck surgery where they've broken up, fractionated their, their training where people have become very specialized. And I think that it's uh, almost a, a natural a follow-on that medicine could do the same thing. It's
0: happened over and over again. Dermatology was once part of internal medicine. Neurology was once part of internal medicine. They all found a way to establish their profession as an independent profession. I think it's time for cardiology to do this. I think it will be highly resisted. Now let me ask you guys a question. What is the source of that resistance? Why are departments of medicine around the country so worried about cardiology becoming independent?
2: I think cardiology uh, constitutes a very large percentage of internal medicine. In fact, if you look at the ABIM boards, the vast majority of questions and topics are on cardiological issues. Um, it's a source of funding that I think is really getting to the heart now of the issue. And I put it in second because I know that. how this works. Uh, I think that's a critical uh, and important part. And you lose cardiology out of medicine, you don't have a lot of
0: revenue drawers anymore. What if I told you that in many academic departments of medicine, the only positive revenue producing discipline is cardiovascular medicine? And so, in, you know, I'm not, it's not every place, but in some places, the entire department of medicine is kept afloat by the revenues being brought in by cardiovascular medicine. Sure. My colleagues, chiefs of cardiology around the country, think that's unfair. They think that we've got people working very hard, coming in in the middle of the night and doing uh, acute MI interventions, generating lots of revenue so everybody else can work from nine to five. Now that's unfair. I'm sure I'm yeah. going to hear about well, this from, I'll I, have from have to defend, some of my colleagues you know, from <laughs>
1: yeah. you know having a, a father who's a nephrologist. You know that they would say that they come in and, and see our patients in the ICU with, with renal failure and other things, and that I think uh, you know having a team approach and finding a way to share. Um, but uh, but I do agree that uh, um, you know that
0: financial concerns will li- largely yeah. drive that that discussion. Yeah, I was being a little bit provocative I, there, but you know the reality is is that that it, it is something that I hear complaints about. From other chiefs of cardiology around the country, and they feel like the system, which taxes cardiology to float the rest of internal medicine, has allowed sure. internal medicine to be less disciplined fiscally, and that maybe it's better for there to be a,
1: a, a somewhat more fair system. We need a more you compassionate know. conservatism towards the uh, economics of medicine. I agree, John. That's a well, good idea.
0: Well, I actually thought that was an oxymoron, compassionate conservatism. But you know, are you guys a couple of the thousand points of light? Is that what's going on here? <clears throat> Which is fair and balanced, I think we'd say. fair and balanced. I'd like to change the topic just a little bit actually to
2: something a little more germane to what we've just been watching the discussion here recently. You know, given the competing interests sometimes between big pharmacy and academic leadership in cardiology and the implications that has on trial design and result interpretation, what do you think is the role or the appropriate role of government oversight in clinical trial conduction and reporting?
0: I do not want to see government oversight of clinical trials. Now, you know, um, I know both of you guys are are people who feel passionately about not having big government. You know, I think that government needs to do a better job of funding clinical trials. I think if we want better evidence-based medicine so we can spend our Medicare dollars, all of our healthcare dollars more wisely, that we need to make money available in the system. But how that's administered and spent should be done by the best scientists, not by the best bureaucrats. And so I feel strongly about that. I do think, though, that we need better codes of conduct. You know, the problem with clinical trials that are completed but show either adverse effects or lack of efficacy and then never get published, this has got to end. And so I did work on Capitol Hill for a law, which I think is appropriate regulation, which says if you do a study you expose human beings to an experimental design, that the results of that experiment belong in the public domain. That you fundamentally can't hide the results of research. That, for the first time, is the law of the land as of September 27th last year, when the president signed the FDAAA legislation. We worked very hard, and I talked with lots of people on the Hill, in both parties, I might add. This is not a conservative or a liberal issue. This is an issue about right and wrong, and I do think some regulation is necessary. I don't want that regulation to stifle innovation. I want it to facilitate innovation, mm-hmm. and I think we can do that. Mm-hmm. Excellent. You, as someone
2: who um, does large-scale clinical trials, and, and we've talked about this before, and I'd be um, I'm sure the audience would be interested in learning, how do you, as a primary investigator, design trials such that at the end of the day, they're beyond reproach and they
0: essentially pass the sniff test. Well, there's a lot of negotiating that goes on with the companies. Mm-hmm. And I think you try to set the rules right up front. You try to put together a steering committee or an executive committee right at the beginning that is not of people who are all of the same mind, but people who are very independent, maybe come from a little bit different disciplines. And you create a, a group that has a certain chemistry that lets people challenge the assumptions, and you make sure that they have the authority to to make sure that the design of the trial is asking the right question. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You conduct the trial under a contract which stipulates that the investigators have the rights to publish the results. Now, most of our contracts have a clause that allows the company to withhold publication for 30 days should there be some intellectual property issue it gives them sure. time to file a patent if something comes up it's never come up you mm. know but it's at least it's there to protect the company's interests and that finally we require as do the other academic center coordinating centers that the trial database be housed at the Cleveland clinic now this is not because companies are crooked or dishonest i will tell you I've done clinical trials with many pharmaceutical companies, with many people who I consider friends. I consider them to be highly ethical and principled individuals who I trust. But appearances are also very important. And I think for the trial to be trusted and believable, knowing that the academic investigators have unrestricted access to the data makes a lot of sense. Now both of you guys have worked with us on clinical trials, and you know what it means have the complete trial database. You know you can go to our statisticians and you can say, I'd like to look at X, Y, and Z. And there's nobody standing in your pathway saying, you can't ask that question. That's what freedom of information is all about. If you do a trial that way, the odds are there's something important, you're going to find it. More importantly, when you report it, hopefully people will understand that it's absolutely right and it's a believable result. We just listened to the
1: cardiology show, and, and uh, we heard Dr. Crumholtz talking about the disconnect between maybe a level of evidence uh, for some therapies that we use, and I were, we were discussing uh, in the audience the possibility of uh, having uh, governing bodies like the ACC while we make uh, recommendations about certain therapies, say, who's, uh, who is... Uh, um, who needs valve replacement or other therapies like that, and directing those kinds of guideline recommendations to individual drug therapies? I wondered what your thoughts were
0: on on moving to a, a system like that. We do largely do that already. Um, if you really drill down in the guidelines, where there's evidence, they get very specific. You know, they will say, you know, that you should use, uh, you know, ACE inhibitors in patients with heart failure. Now, they may not be brand specific and they probably shouldn't be when when the evidence suggests that there's no brand by brand difference. Uh, But I think we do make some pretty specific recommendations. Here's the problem we have. We don't have very good comparative effectiveness trials where we take two different treatment strategies and we pit them head to head. It's often not of commercial interest to companies to do that unless they really think they've got a, a slam dunk winner. What we really need to know is, let, let's take a, a big area like diabetes. What's the best way to lower blood sugar to prevent cardiovascular events? Does anybody know? I don't think we do. I don't know. Never been tested. The only data out there is UK PDS, sure. not very statistically robust. Shouldn't we know? Should we give you metformin, sulfonylurea, sure. you know, citagliptin, and I think the real deficit knowledge here is that we aren't doing comparative effectiveness trials. They're big trials because they need a lot of power to answer the question, but boy are they important. And we've got to move beyond the, doing only the trials that support approval and marketing of, you know, brand name drugs towards trials that ask more fundamental questions about what's the best therapy for patients.
2: We were sort of discussing something along these lines in that. You know, the clinical trial industry has almost evolved such that it is doing that, as you suggest, that it's meeting the needs of uh, pharmaceutical companies in that it's obtaining FDA approval, it's getting devices implanted. Do you think maybe we should be moving back towards more hard endpoints like antiplatelet trialist collaborative endpoints, non-fatal MI, stroke, death, um, hardcore endpoints that we care
0: about, make you feel better, live longer, cost less money? There's a big challenge there. Here's the challenge. For those of us that have been doing clinical trials for a while, the event rates in all these diseases are ratcheting down. And when that happens, then the sample size to show a difference between two effective therapies gets bigger and bigger. And so what's the first thing people do when that happens? Is they broaden the endpoint. And they say, we're not just gonna look at death, MI, and stroke. We're gonna look at death, MI, stroke, and hospitalization for unstable angina, or hospitalization for heart failure. And I think that's why when reading clinical trials, What I look for is the point estimate for the benefit for the hard endpoints and the soft endpoints. If all the benefits in the soft endpoints, that will have a different weight in my thinking about the desirability of that therapy. And the harder the endpoint, the more desirable. Now I sent an FDA panel that reviewed a trial that was a post-MI beta blocker trial called Capricorn with Carvedilol. And it had a p-value that was pretty good on mortality even though the primary endpoint of the trial failed. And we gave a label to that drug because mortality pretty much trumps everything. And I think having a good, thoughtful perspective on what is it that we really are trying to do, what are the things that patients really care about? I can tell you one thing is is if you ask a patient to trade a myocardial infarction for a stroke, most of them will take an MI every day. So there is a great you know, gradation of impairment related to various kinds of endpoints, and we have to keep that in mind. Do you think
1: there's any traction in uh, making a large-scale attempt at linking surrogate, outpoint- surrogate endpoints to outcomes, uh, meaning that if we were to somehow have government-funded uh, investigations, sort of a Framingham-type uh, you know, starting those now to say, if you could prove that CIMT or, or some of the Ivis generated outcomes really did or really were linked um, uh, to hard endpoints, uh, do you think there's any, any future in, in pursuing those kinds of trials?
0: I don't think it's going to help us. And let me tell you why surrogate endpoints fail. They almost always fail, and they all do eventually, due to off-target toxicity. That's the most common thing. So the drug does what it was designed to do for the endpoint that you chose, but it does something else. Now a sto- the story, the great story here is the torsotropib story. Lowered LDL and raised HDL, but nobody knew that it had an aldosterone-like effect that pushed up blood pressure and was probably proatherogenic. You know, Vioxx was a pretty good pain reliever, but it had an off-target pro-thrombotic effect. led to myocardial infarctions. So no matter what surrogate endpoints you choose, eventually they will fail. And even though you may have very tight linkage between those endpoints and what you care about, you ultimately have to test the effect of the drug on those events that really are important to patients. If you don't do that, you're never going to have the answer. Well, like you said, with, with the things in medicine, it
1: always comes down to money. And do you have any ideas about how we could use technology or some groundbreaking idea to help reduce the costs of conducting large scale clinical trials? Well,
0: I can sure tell you one thing. We know how to waste money in our healthcare system. We spend twice as much as any other developed country. And we don't have any better quality. So I think there's lots of money in the system. You know, insurance companies are very profitable, it's one of the most profitable businesses to be in. Um, And I do think that we have to use money more wisely. Now, I think we sometimes use technology in America. We spend money like drunken sailors. You know, everybody's got to have a CT scanner on every corner, because that's the latest, hottest thing, the CT angiography. Now, CT angiography may turn out okay. The data's still not all in yet. But I can tell you an awful lot of people doing it long before we have evidence of its benefit. And so, our technomaniac approach to medicine, I think, is beginning to backfire. It's raised our costs. I think we have to ask more fundamental questions What's the least expensive, the most efficient way to prevent those events that really, you know, patients really care about? Um, it's not necessarily with the most technology. And
1: whose responsibility is it for guiding us into wisely spending our money?
0: I believe that professional societies need to step up to the plate. Now, you know, the ACC is on a mission right now. Mission's called Quality First. Very proud of the organization. I, I hope you got to hear the opening plenary lecture at the ACC annual meeting where all of these things were discussed in some considerable detail. But let me tell you that these registries that have taken off and are collecting prospective data we're gonna be able to ask those registries questions like of two different treatment strategies, which yielded the best outcome, which yielded the lowest costs. So if we do this for ourselves, it will make a big difference. You know, one of the comments I heard during this meeting that I thought was really resonated with me about healthcare reform, it said that physicians need a seat at the table, cardiologists need a seat at the table because if we don't have a seat at the table, we're likely to be on the menu. (laughs) And uh, I think that is a very apropos comment. So I do think we need healthcare reform. We need to learn how to spend our resources wisely. I don't think we spend them wisely now.
2: You know, it's been a, uh, a long weekend with the enhanced saga playing out. And I think we just spent a lot of time talking about that. As someone who's been an integral part of that and a focus and someone who's been doing clinical trials for some time, How do you think that that impacts fellows who are coming up through considering an academic career or young investigators who are in an academic career? Do you think the pharmaceutical impropriety at times can sometimes sour the view folks have of academic medicine?
0: Well, it shouldn't. And, you know, I want to say this again. Uh, We should not allow the bad behavior of a few to color our view of the many and I have great respect for many people in the pharmaceutical industry. I just want there to be an ethical standard that's very high and it's across the board. And I you know, work with just some fine people in the industry and I really am passionate about this. A lot of things were done wrong. I believe now the current congressional investigations, the investigations by the state of New York and the state of Connecticut, the Securities Exchange Commission and others, will get to the bottom of this. And when they do, It will be a disincentive to companies in the future to do trials without steering committees, without data safety and monitoring boards, to withhold data for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And so we have a self-correcting system. You know, one of my favorite sayings is that sunlight is the antidote for corruption. Well, we're getting a lot of sunlight right now. When it's over, there will be a lot cleaner system in place. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen uh, in your your career,
1: uh, people who've made mistakes or gone wrong. I wonder if you had advice for fellows uh, in their dealings with pharma as we're talking about that. Do you have anything that that you would recommend to them as they're maybe starting an academic career and saying, these are the things that you shouldn't do, these are the things that you should do, or ways that you can try to keep yourself
0: from going astray? Yeah. First of all, there are a lot of things you can do. Um, And you will have temptations thrown your way. Um, I guarantee you, you will be approached at some point with somebody who's had a a, uh, a for hire group write a manuscript and they'll offer to write it for you and let you be an author of it. Just say no. Um, I go further than that. You know, I made a decision a number of years ago that I could not be independent if I took money uh, for consulting fees or honoraria, speaking on behalf of pharmaceutical companies. It doesn't mean I won't consult. I'll sit on a consulting board, but I won't take the money. I have them give the money to a charitable fund that the ACC runs. If you really want to stay, you know, unconflicted, that's a huge advantage if you can possibly do that. You know, I think some of us are pretty fanatical about it. You know, not accepting any kind of favors that might, you know, be perceived by anybody. And there's really, uh, it's really about you know, what would, your, what would your next door neighbor think, you know, if you went off on some junket, you know, somewhere, you know, that was camouflaged as education or something else, but really was a junket designed to win your favor.
1: What about concerns that if you, if you uh, say don't play ball that then you'll be
0: excluded from the game? Well, I think you can have it both ways. Um, if you establish a reputation for independence and integrity, then some people will come to you for that. Not everybody.
1: Do you think that having a, a mentor
0: who can sort of bring you up through the ranks is important in that? Having a men- mentors is the most critical thing. You know, it's why, you know, I'm very pleased with what we've now done at the Cleveland Clinic where all of our clinical trial operations were We're allowing fellows the opportunity to participate really, you know, fundamentally in the, in the work around those clinical trials and making contacts. And learning how how you do this, Uh, that kind of experience I never had. That you know, I learned it many years later. Tough road to hoe, and I made plenty of mistakes. Um, You know, I think we do have to teach people how to be academic leaders, how to be clinical trialists. We have to teach them about the ethical standards, and I think that kind of example can make a really big difference. So, do you think, in fact, almost bringing it full
2: circle to what we first uh, inquired about, is there a role for a fellowship track for a research fellow, somebody who was thinking of doing clinical trials as a career, something that incorporated an MPH, the MD, the clinical trial right off the bat, and shortened other things that were less applicative to that trial?
0: Absolutely agree. You know, and, um, you know, uh, when you get an MPH, among other things, you get a lot of statistics. And the more you know about statistics, the more you understand how to power trials, how to interpret trials. And you know, I would be very supportive of that. Uh, I recently uh, paid for the tuition for one of our faculty to earn an MPH, uh, you know, and gave him time off to do that because I thought that that was an appropriate thing for a chairman to do for a faculty member that really wanted to advance his skills. Uh, and I'm sure that that was very valuable to him. And you know, I think to do that as a fellow, I wished I had. Yeah. You know, didn't have the opportunity in my day. I'm. But I, if I had the opportunity to do all over again, I'd get an MPH probably, and I'd learn some of those extra statistics so that I really understand Cox proportional hazards and not just on a superficial level. Yeah. And I think I'd be better if I did.
1: I'd like to thank you both for uh, being here this evening. I think it's been an engaging discussion, and uh, hopefully your seat didn't get too hot while you were here. Uh, and I'd like to thank the audience, and hopefully they found it uh, as uh, ex- exciting as we did.
0: I enjoyed it also, and uh, I want to say that you guys were very successful. You're con- continuous fellows. We <laughs>
2: <laughs> You've been listening to The Fellows' Corner on the Heart.org radio.